You're listening to Banter Radio, sfbantr.org. On this episode, I interview Catherine Moore, marriage and family therapist in San Francisco, California, and author of the new book, Connecting the Dots, Positive Intentions, Negative Impacts, My Journey Through CPS. Catherine and I discuss her stories and perspectives from working 17 years in child protective services. Catherine can be reached through her website, connectingthedotsbook.info. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me, Catherine. Oh, thank you for having me. So I was really interested in bringing Catherine by because um, Child Protective Services is an organization some people know about, but like you said in your book, before you got involved, it's kind of a mysterious organization. It's it's powerful, but we don't always know what goes on, how they make decisions. So um, for people who don't know much about Child Protective Services or CPS, like how would you describe what they do and what their role is in society? Well, actually, there are two types of CPS. There is the institution of CPS, and that involves politicians, it involves the judicial system, it involves foster parents, it involves CBOs, which are community-based organizations that offer support for um, CPS. It also involves therapists. Then there's the agency. When most people are thinking about CPS, they're actually thinking about the agency of CPS. They're thinking about child welfare workers, and they're thinking about direct services. When you hear a news item uh, that something has happened horrible to a, to a child, that's actually referring to the agency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the, the purpose of CPS is? Like what, what do CPS workers see as their role? Well, the original purpose of CPS, well, I want to first start out saying that CPS is a legal system. So the original purpose of CPS was to create a legal system in which children that are abused can be uh, removed from the home of their parents. The second part of this legal system is the legal rights of the parents. And a lot of times there's a lot of confusion, especially if CPS allows a child to go back to the home or CPS... Um, looks at relatives that are part of the uh, family that maybe have caused trauma to to the child because that is CPS protecting the rights, the legal rights of a parent. Mm-hmm. So that's the political aspect of CPS as well as the legal aspect of CPS. But CPS, first and foremost, you'll hear it quite frequently is about the best interests of the child, but that is something that every, that's a very subjective statement, and everyone has a different idea of what is the best interest of the child. And I can imagine it's uh, very complex deciding that, especially when people outside the family deciding what's in the best interest of the child. And there's a lot of um, competing viewpoints on what would be the best interest, correct? Yes, there are. And um, can I, I'll read you um, a section from your book here. And you say, It is my hope that in reading this book, people will have a serious dialogue about what can be done to minimize the pain to both clients and those that work in the field. It is my dream that the original idea of helping children heal becomes a reality when those that touch the lives of the children connect the dots between the ideal, the real, and how to make the system better. So you talk about 
the the ideal in CPS and the real and what actually goes on. And you were involved with CPS for 17 years, is that correct? 17.2 years, yes. 17.2 <laughs> years. <laughs> Let's be specific. <laughs> and um, what did you notice about the ideal and the real, um, and the realities of what was going on? Well, the, the ideal is a a social worker that comes right out of graduate school. She's heard all of these new theories about how she can best help and serve the client. There is this ideal that people that work in CPS are going to be helping the family, that they are the good guys. And there is also the negative perception by some that the family is not good. And that's more the deficit-minded case management. Uh, Prior to about 1990, I think it's 1997, in in 1997, strength-based case management started coming, um, started coming into CPS. And when, and what that is, is that the child and the family are part of each other. Prior to that, the focus was primarily on the child. It was a child-centered and it basically said that the child should be removed from this family system. It should be removed from this environment so that healing can occur. So both deficit and strength, they want to heal, but they have different lenses in terms of how they look at the problems that may be presented to them. So if I can understand that, then a deficit model sees you know, the family as some kind of uh, deficit, and so... Um, what's what's healing for the child would be to take them away from the family. Yes. And the strength-based model is seeing that the family um, has good intentions and strengths, and if you can strengthen the family um, and keep them together, that would um, be the most healing for the child. Yes. But are there times when um, when you felt like you know taking the child away was a, was appropriate? Well, it. I basically, I probably should uh, clarify. I, mean, I am a strength-based worker. Mm-hmm. But there are problems that may be so difficult for the family to resolve. There are mental health problems. There are developmental delay problems. There are substance usage problems where the healing process may take much longer than the legal process will allow. Mm. The legal process is very time limited. The healing process may take a lifetime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um what was it like for you to to begin writing this book after you left CPS? Well, I always knew that I was going to write this book. I knew that I was going to write this book around 2012. Mm-hmm. Because around 2012, I started realizing that I was not part of the solution, that I was also part of the problem, and that CPS does create trauma, not intentionally, not because people are trying to hurt someone, but the process of CPS, the institution of CPS, the way um, problems are addressed, the way solutions are created, are traumatizing not just to the family and to the child that can affect generational trauma. It's also traumatizing to anyone that works with these families. I've seen lawyers become traumatized, judges become traumatized, child welfare workers become traumatized, supervisors that become traumatized because you're making a decision about someone's life or death. And that can be a heavy load for many people. Mm -hmm. 
you know, there's there's a term like post traumatic stress disorder, which um, people talk about. But I've also heard of a, a newer term called moral injury. Mm-hmm. It's a term I've heard of often used with the soldiers, where they feel like they've done something that was against their morals or ethics, and it's very painful, and it has a lot of the same kind of symptoms of trauma. Um, were you saying like with a lot of the workers, they get the kind of trauma because they're transgressing some kind of moral or ethical values? I think that might be true for some workers, but there's also vicarious trauma, Mm -hmm. the trauma of just and compassion fatigue, that you see yourself trying and trying and trying, and yet the outcomes don't ever seem to be what you would hope that they could be. Mm -hmm. For me, there there was an ethical dilemma, but I developed a workaround that ethical dilemma because I happen to have had a supportive supervisor. If I didn't have a supportive supervisor, I probably would have quit mm-hmm. years ago. So the supervisor, would you say, was the workaround or something else? My supervisor else? was the workaround. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm sure if that supervisor was listening, he would say, yes, I was, and I got in a lot of trouble <laughs> because of it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Catherine. <laughs> well, you also mentioned in the book like, having some kind of moral compass was helpful to you in navigating the complexities. Yes. Um, I decided when I first started that I realized that the institution of CPS is racist. It's not racist by intent. It's racist by how the practices were developed and the group that was targeted. In 1997, 70% of people that were receiving services or children were removed from CPS were black. 20% were Hispanic and 10% were other. When you're looking at that, you know that there's something wrong. It's like the rest of the population doesn't do these things. Of course they do. But the real target of CPS happens to be poor people. It's not even racial. It's basically about poverty. If you don't have the resources and you don't understand how to fight the system, you can be engulfed in the system, and it can happen generation after generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that in the book that a lot of the CPS workers did not come from like a background in in poverty, and most you talked about a lot of like white middle class women. Yeah. When I when I first started in 1997, I would say that it was generally someone, a white female, middle class white female, just out of grad school, that had this desire to help and service mm-hmm. and to give back. But what I also realized in 1997 is that they were afraid of black people. Mm-hmm. So how can you help a particular group if you basically are afraid of them? Mm-hmm. And I knew that they were afraid of them because they would talk about it in conversations and they would describe combative. That would be like a key word that uh, a person was combative. That is not something they may have been angry, but I too would have been angry if someone had came in and taken my child. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person is combative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the subtitle of your book is Positive Intentions, Negative Impacts. And mm-hmm. you, you talk about... You didn't see a lot of people involved in the system who had negative intentions, even you know, family members, uh, professionals, uh, CPS workers. You felt like there were positive intentions all around, but there were negative impacts. There were positive intentions because the desire to be of service, the desire to help was there for most people. The negative impacts were created by the lenses that they may have viewed their clients with. If you're looking at a client as being a problem, 
It's almost like in psychology, if you always look at the pathology of a client, how can you discover that client's strength? How can you empower that client? So I prefer to look at a client from a wellness model versus a pathological model. And many people that have positive intentions, they were looking at the client from either a sense of pity or pathology. And they were very, very quick to label the client, and the client was kind of stuck with that label. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let me read some from, from your book around what you wrote about this. In graduate school, I learned about the world of pathology. I also learned about the bias that I saw in the teaching of pathology. The psychological worldview that I was taught in school did not make sense to me. The world of psychological theory said that a concept or theory had a universal application. The theory did not take into account culture. The colorblind approach to psychology painted the client with broad strokes. It did not even pay lip service to the role of culture, trauma, generational trauma, race, and gender. It looked at humanity as everything was equal. It did not feel right to me. I knew that some of what happened to my mother was about race and gender. Her unhappiness was fueled by the social rules of her time. She was not the same as a white male. The ideal of male privilege and white privilege was not in the classroom in 1992. So you described like the complexity of going into families with a lot of, like you said, white middle-class 20-something-year-olds fresh out of school, going into these families, mostly people of color, raised in more poor background. And did they, did the training you go through kind of address some these complexities? It sounds not in school. Did, did the CPS kind of go into training that sort of address some of those complexities? No. No. Okay. <laughs> That's a quick enough answer. Uh, the training was more of an overview. And the training actually reflected the academic training that, I had just recently gone through. At that time in 97, in 96, 97, culture was not viewed. It wasn't viewed psychologically. It wasn't viewed sociologically. It was like culture was a second thought. It was a secondary part of the problem. It wasn't part of the the real problem. The real problem was um, that people needed to become better parents. They didn't deal with the poverty issue as to why they may not be good parents. They didn't deal with the cultural issue, which is that many black families are so terrified that their sons are going to be murdered or killed by society that they can over-control or over-punish or over-discipline, mostly because they're afraid that if that child goes out in the world and says something to an authority figure, that child will be targeted. That is a very real thing that's within the black community. But if you talk to any of the people that I met in 1997, they weren't even aware of this fear of death that many black parents feel for their children. When did when you brought that perspective into some of these conversations at CPS, were people interested? Uh, was it was it welcome? How how did those conversations go? Well, they didn't happen. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't happen um, partly because I I knew from listening to their conversations that having that kind of real conversation was not something that they would be receptive to. And to be really honest, I wasn't sure that I wanted to have that real conversation. I was maybe one of three, I think, uh, 
of black social workers when I first arrived there. 80% were white, and there was a very, very small percentage of black social workers that would be able to kind of have that dialogue and actually confirm mm -hmm. some of the facts that I that I knew existed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Catherine Moore, author of the new book, Connecting the Dots, Positive Intentions, Negative Impacts, My Journey Through CPS. Catherine Moore uh, spent 17.2 years in CPS, and the book just came out this month? It came out July 14th, July 14th. Okay, yeah. and where, where can they get this book? Well, they I have a website called Connecting the Dots Book dot no, info. Um, but you can only find it on Google. Um, you can also get it at Amazon, you can get it at Barnes and Nobles. Um, if you go to my actual website, you can contact me there. And um, if you want an autographed copy of the book, we could maybe figure out how to make that happen. Someone had asked me about any positive stories that Catherine could share about uh, outcomes from CPS involvement, so I asked her about positive stories from her book. I had this father, and this was in the late 1990s, probably 98, 99, who's, who, his teenage daughter went to school and told the people at school that her father just went off on her and that he slapped her. At that time, if a child made an accusation, that child was removed from the home because there was the assumption made that if a child is making an accusation against the father, that the parent is at fault. So, And also there was a view that black men were angry and hostile. So I interviewed the, the father, and I interviewed the, the minor first, and the minor said, well, he just went off, and he slapped me. Has he ever done this before? No. And she was very indignant. Mostly, it seemed that her ego was wounded, not because she wasn't physically wounded. So then I interviewed the father, and he told me that um, he worked at night. He came home at 7 a.m., and she was, she was in bed with a young man, and he just lost it. He described her clothing as not having any clothing. And um, so I went back to the girl. I said, were you in bed with no clothes? No, I had on my underwear. I said, well, do you not think it might have been a bit disrespectful to be having sex with a boy in your father's home? And she, she kind of looked puzzled and was more confused by the question because she didn't quite understand what I was trying to say. And then I asked her, I said, are you afraid of your father? No. Is he a person that hits you or... Uh, is verbally abusive? And she said no. And what I recognized, by that time I knew when I knew that there were parents that raged at their children. A raging parent would have pulled her by her hair, jerked her out of bed, physically beat her, possibly hurt the boy. He didn't do anything. He slapped her once. And the thing that people don't really understand about the law of corporal punishment is that you actually are legally allowed to hit your child. You're not legally allowed to bruise your child or hit your child with foreign objects or leave a mark on your child. The child didn't have any marks. 
He didn't have a history of abusing her. And he wasn't angry. He was just tired. And he was frustrated. And I sent the girl home and told her to stop it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think um, other workers might have made a different decision in that case? They definitely would have because they would have decided that a lot of a lot of the thought at that time, and this is like late 90s, was that parents need to be taught a lesson. There was very much a punitive style towards parents, that parents were wrong and that they should somehow or another be corrected for that injury that they caused their child. So um, because I was a parent of a teenager, I also understood the challenges that teenagers can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned that you, it always seemed to you like the parents loved the chi- love their children. I, mean, I don't know if there are exceptions to that, but it was not the case that you were constantly running to parents who seemed like they didn't care, didn't love their children. Is that right? Yes. The interesting thing about love is that different people love differently. Some people love well in the sense that they are able to model kindness, compassion, support, and a loving voice for their child. Other people love their child the way that they were loved. And sometimes the way they were loved is harsh. Sometimes the way that they were loved was in a unkind, belittling manner. Unfortunately, as a parent, you pretty much can only do what you know how to do. And there were parents that loved their child, but they did not love them well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to read a little, another excerpt from your book. And when you were talking about when you were first arriving at CPS and getting involved in the system, when I was new to the environment and I heard people talking about their cases, many times I heard child welfare workers talking about their families in the pathological jargon of the day. The workers would tell each other some of their horror stories I mostly tried to tune these conversations out because I was offended by the view that some workers took of the families. I learned very early that clients were not seen as people, but through a pathological lens. Here, I am again experiencing the same doubts that I had in my graduate program. Once again, the cultural lens is missing. Once again, the perspective is one of privilege and one size fits all. Whenever I turned into some of the convers- whenever I tuned into some of the conversations, I would hear some of the frustrations of the workers. They were not being welcomed, and client resistance was common. There was an acceptance of us versus them and a bonding around that fact. I'd hear conversations about how clients lied to them and how they didn't see that they were trying to be helpful. A scenario would be played in my mind that I did not share with the other workers. So you have young white women going into poor black families and using a middle-class perspective to determine whether they were fit parents. Most of their intentions were to be helpful. They wanted to protect the children from the awful people who were hurting them. They wanted to do a good job. They were neither mean nor unkind people, nor would I use the term racist. They were culturally biased, and they were working in a field that did not require as they become culturally competent. The probability of this being a disastrous combination was high. The relationship would be combustible from the first knock on the door. So what what kind of... Um, you mentioned pathological jargon that mm-hmm. was kind of the discourse that was uh, maybe supporting some uh, workers to treat families as maybe less than human or um, make make certain kinds of decisions. Can you describe some of that uh, language? Well, one of them is that um, I don't know if people are familiar with the 
the pathological language that's in the DSM. But, you know, they would describe them in terms of, um, like, their, their borderlines or their narcissistic or... Um, but they would also use, like, code words that were not necessarily psychologically pathological, but uh, they would say that a child needed, quote, an enriched home environment. And that was code word for middle class. And, and by their terminology, it was middle class white. And they would describe uh, black black people, both men and women, as combative. Um, they would describe children as oppositionally defiant. So there was a lot of pathological language. And unlike, there's, there's a perception of CPS that a lot of the cases are about sexual abuse. Most of the cases are about neglect. And neglect is anything from the parent having a substance usage problem, the parent leaving the child with the wrong person. Uh, it isn't the, the kind of movie problems that people were having their children removed from. It was the frustrating problems that parents have, uh, the child not doing what they said or not following the rules, the, the parent overreacting to that. So there, and it would be viewed from a pathological perspective. That story I gave earlier about that man, he would have been considered to be combative and the child would have been considered to have been traumatized. And even if she said she wasn't afraid of him, she would not have been believed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And going back to this idea of uh, a moral compass, and when you were meeting with families, um, you had said once that one of the guiding principles for you was how do you minimize harm? I had two moral compasses. One, to make sure that every client was given an even playing field, that their case was looked at as a per incident versus having a historical look at the client. So that was one of my moral compasses. So when, when you're looking at a client from a individual even playing field, it was also to try to minimize the, the institutional racism that I actually did see within the system. Clients would come with a lot, especially clients that had been there for several years. Their folders were seven, eight inches thick, if not bigger than that. They would have multiple folders. And you could read through these folders and get a very distinct picture, but the writing of these reports was designed to convince the court of whatever policy that happened to have been in vogue at the time that that case came into CPS. So you you could see a lot of negative perceptions and very very little strength-based or cultural-based perceptions written. So the, le- the, the level playing field was my most important professional moral compass mm-hmm. for the clients. And it's also the one that got me in the most trouble. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you say a little bit more about that? How, how did it get you into trouble? Well, you know, I was a front-end worker. I was a DI worker, which is a court worker. They want those cases done in 10 to 15 court days. I would keep cases at the beginning for anywhere from three to six months um, because I don't think that you can actually make an assessment of a family in 10, 10 working days. My supervisor got in trouble for my holding on to cases. I got in trouble for my holding on to cases. But I also believed that the only way that I could give a, 
a client a real assessment was to be able to, to get to know them and most importantly, get to see their humanity. There is an absence of the human view that, that if a person, if you can see a person's humanity, if you can see that it's not us versus them, if you can see their strengths, if you can see their, their intentions without the filter of are they awful, you get to witness something that can be both life-affirming and it can be changing for you mm-hmm. as a worker. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do that by holding on to cases. I was also able to get a better outcome for the family because I understood the system. There's a, another therapist in Australia named Shona Russell who recently said something like, um, you know, we're all shaped by the people we work with. And you mentioned um, this, that this work in Chapter Services is the most soul-fulfilling and soul-wrenching uh, work that you've done. And, but I, I guess I'm curious, uh, what ways was it the soul-fulfilling side of things? And you mentioned, you know, um, how, how did it shape you working with some of these clients? Well, one of, the, one of my first... Uh, I would probably say life-affirming client that actually changed me and changed the direction of how I saw the work was a client that actually already had two children adopted and they had been removed because that particular client had substance usage. And she was scheduled for a no-services caseload to explain to people that meant that this her infant, her newborn infant, was going to be fast-forwarded to adoption, that she was not going to be given any reunification services, um, it was just her case was designed to move very quickly through the system. And I happened at that time to have had a bias against substance usage. I wasn't a fan of people that used drugs. But I had a moral principle that said my particular view of substance usage is not what I should be looking at. I should be giving her an even playing field and I should be looking and treating her fairly. So I took this client to um, a drug treatment program. When I picked her up, she was high. And she was, and I was very annoyed because she was high. I didn't really know that much about substance usage. I hadn't gone back to school. It wasn't really taught that much in graduate school. And there was kind of a division between uh, the psychological or the therapeutic lens and the case management lens and the substance, substance abuse lens. So I picked her up and Throughout this ride, she was grabbing hold of the handle like she wanted to jump out of the car. And I'm saying to myself, this woman is going to kill herself, and I'm going to get in trouble. Now, remember, I'm thinking about me. (laughs) And I told her, don't you touch that handle again. If you touch that handle, I'm going to put you out of the car. And she looked at me, and she said, you don't like drug addicts very much. I said, no, I don't. I said, I think you're the walking dead. And... She, we finally got to the place where she was going to have treatment. And because she was high, they wouldn't take her. So I had to take her to a hospital so that she could get ready for detox. 
And this hospital happened to have been in Marin. And she was a black client. And she started lunging at all these little white babies. And I said to myself, this woman's going to get me arrested. Here we are in this all-white environment, the only two black people here. And she's lunging after all these little babies. And I became so annoyed. I said to myself, what am I doing? I could just give her a no services case, walk off with my life. They'll congratulate me for finally becoming a team player. And I don't have to have any grief. And then all of a sudden she pulled out these pictures. And these pictures were of her children that she had lost. And they were all crumbled because she had looked at them. Now her case folder said that she didn't care about her children. Her case folder said that she wasn't interested in recovery. Her case folder said that she was just a disinterested parent who deserved to have her children taken away from her. That's what her case folder said. So I stayed with her. So they, they gave her some kind of intravenous, I don't know what it is, to kind of bring her down. And she woke up, and I started talking to her, and I started getting her story. And I discovered that she had been a drug dealer, and that she looked at her addiction as a sign of shame and weakness because she looked at her addiction as saying that she couldn't control it because for her, it was about mind over matter. And, and for her, it was about weakness, that she was an addict because she was weak. And you can't be a drug dealer and be weak. And then she talked, then I asked her, I said, well, why didn't you fight for your children? And she said, because she didn't think that she can get them back. And I asked her, had she ever been in a drug treatment program? She said, no because she never thought she could get them back. So I, I gave her my promise at that time that I would help her. But by taking that moment of looking at her humanity, I began to realize that all of a client's story isn't in their folder, that you actually have to talk to them, that you actually have to meet them where they are, and you have to give yourself and them the opportunity for both of you to see each other. Mm-hmm. There's more to her story, but you have to read that. But she did get her child back initially, yes. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, in these case folders, they don't tell the full story. What What did you find was often missing in these case folders? How would you describe that? Well, when you look, well, I guess maybe the first thing is that you have to figure out who, who were the workers writing for and why... Why did they frame their writing the way that they framed it? Because I can look at a person's report and tell you, one, what lens they're looking looking at, who actually was doing the writing, and why they were doing the writing. Sometimes workers are writing because a supervisor has given them a directive. And that supervisor's directive says, you need to, this child needs to come out of the home, and I want you to write a report that reflects that. Sometimes the report is the worker's own lens and the worker's own bias where they have taken a intense dislike or like to a family and they frame that report that way. And sometimes the, the workers are writing the reports to the judges because they don't want to be given grief by a particular judge and they happen to know the lens of that judge. So the reports can go anywhere from awful to nice. But usually what was missing at the beginning of my journey with CPS was the client's humanity. What definitely was missing was the culture that may have framed the client's behavior. So it became more about policy, politics, and lens.
do parents ever not want uh, not want their kids in their family want to get rid of their kids when CPS comes around well it happened very very rarely uh, there would be parents that um, would give their child up for adoption because after they created that law that you could give your child up for adoption within I think it's a certain number of hours or days or something like that. But most of the time, no, they wanted their children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Catherine, um, if someone's by a computer and wants to look up your website, what, what would you, what's the URL? Uh, well, the first thing is that it can only be found on Google. I okay. tried finding it on Bing and I couldn't find it. Okay. <laughs> so the website is called connectingthedotsbook.info. Okay. So, um, Connecting the dots book dot info. Yes. Okay. Great. Um, I wanted to read a section of your of your book here mm-hmm. and talk about it. I was always faced with wondering whether I was making the right decision. Second guessing yourself and beating yourself up are part of the job requirements. The indecision and doubts are also why there's such a huge burnout within the field. I scurried around working long hours trying to get everything done. Many people quit during the first two or three years of working. Doing the balancing act of trying to be an effective case manager, caring about your clients, and playing politics is just too is just too much for most people, and they quit. What I can say is that I did not have a life. My life was my work, and that was all that I did. Did the clients care that I did not have a life? No. Did the judge care that I did not have a life? No. Did the attorneys care that I did not have a life? No. Sadly, one of the reasons they didn't care was probably they did not have a life either. The intensity of the work, the time demands, and the crisis management all takes its toll, and your professional life often is the price you pay. We lived in our individual red zones trying to survive. And that leads me to another question uh, someone asked, which was, it seems like the type of work you would take home with you. And how did you practice self-care in in this work? Well, early on in the work, I learned what not to do. I learned not to make decisions when I was angry or tired or frustrated. And I most certainly learned not to make decisions when I didn't like the client. So when um, those things would happen, I would take a mental health day, and I just wouldn't come to work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I didn't have to take a lot of sick days, but that's what I would do. The other thing I would do is I would go to the movies. And I never see movies that remind me of my work, so I never saw Precious. If I wanted to see someone be mean to their their child, all I had to do was look up, you know, open up a folder where I could see it. So there would be certain movies I would avoid. I would see sci-fi movies. I would see pretty much anything. And then I started trying to learn how to meditate. And I haven't become really good at it, but I have learned how to kind of take a meditative stance, which is I can kind of get myself into that meditative mode where I become centered and I allow myself to allow the energy to around me to dissipate so that I don't have to become part of that energy. I know that that sounds kind of like whatever, but that is what I do. So rather than being part of some, some negative energy that I might be experiencing, I separate myself out from that, that kind of vortex that can kind of suck you in. So... And let's see, what else did I ever do? Um, I only went to happy movies or sci-fi movies. So if it was about monsters or something funny, then I would be sitting there in the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talk about the, the meditative stance 
So is that like something formal you practiced or was it, was there kind of like some poetic words that you would keep in mind when, when the vortex was, was particularly strong? Well, one thing earlier on I realized is that I did not create the healing. The heal, I could take a client to the door. I could tell them what was behind the door, but they had to do the work because it was going to be their prize. They were going to get their child back. So I learned to disconnect my outcomes from myself. Mm. And I began to realize that if I was doing more work than the client, then maybe I was doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. So my meditative stance is more of me having a conversation with myself. When I start experiencing my own distress or start experiencing frustration or shortness uh, with myself or with clients, I would kind of just take a, a moment and I would sometimes just look off into space at my desk Sometimes I, they, they had this little room uh, where I worked that I could go in there and um, sit there and be by myself for a while and just kind of collect my thoughts and kind of gain perspective. If you don't have perspective in that particular kind of work, you will become overwhelmed very quickly. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you know, part, of, part of the challenge is uh, wondering if you're making the right decision. And that's kind of the stress, second-guessing yourself and beating yourself up about making the right decision. And it occurs to me that there are probably lots of times when there's no clear judge at the end saying, you made the right decision that you can rely on. Um, how, how did you deal with that when you, when, you, when you can't really know what the right decision is and what, what would be the best for a client? Well, for me, it goes back to my own moral compass of giving the client an even playing field. For other workers, it's just about finding the easiest way to do the job. Mm -hmm. Um, Some workers, they just follow the law. Mm -hmm. They just do whatever the literal law says, and they don't ever work outside of the law. Some, they just do what their supervisors, so they go get the supervisor to make the decision, and then they just say, well, it wasn't my decision. It was my supervisor's decision. But I didn't particularly want to work that way. One of the ways that I worked is that I created active case management. Active case management is something that people that have Native American ancestry are entitled to if they have a child that's been removed from CPS. By active case management, what CPS requires would require me to do. Say if I had a person that had substance usage, I could give them a list of referrals Uh, tell them where to call, and it was their responsibility to do it. With active case management, you are to help that person call. You are to take that person to the treatment program. You are to be more involved with the process by assisting that client with the process. It takes a lot more time, and in the particular section that I was in, time was always in the background. You were always trying to do a hurry-up-and-wait job. Mm. But so active case management also became a way for me to to live with myself, to know that I was giving my 100% to that client. Mm-hmm. I once heard the phrase, you know, being responsible to the clients, not responsible for them. Yes. So I think of that as not responsible for the outcome, but responsible, like you said, to be active as a case manager, to be taking them to places. And that's... And the responsibility for the client can often be a real source of burnout when people take on that responsibility for the outcomes. Yeah. Clients are responsible for their lives. 
but you can be compassionate with that responsibility. You don't have to say, well, you're responsible for your life, so get to it. You can also understand why some of them don't have the skill sets that they need. Mm -hmm. A lot of case management in CPS is checking off the boxes. You know, you get them a therapist, you sign them up for parenting classes, um, you give them referrals for maybe housing, things like that. But the compassionate response, which is talking to them, listening to them, seeing their humanity, that is sometimes you just don't have time for. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what I would make time for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. a question from a woman in Toronto who asks, at what point did you begin to question uh, CPS's practices? From the beginning. From the beginning. <laughs> the beginning, like the first training day? Is that what well, from what... It, I really started questioning it when I went to my first court hearing. And at my first court hearing, it's... Let me describe the scene. You, you have this hallway, and it's filled with people that have all that are in various stages of the court process. It's filled with attorneys, it's filled with clients, it's filled with witnesses, but it's this big hallway. And there is no privacy. There is no little, you know, you would try to find a little corner to go talk to a client. So when I first started talking to attorneys, I realized this is let's make a deal. This is, this, and they want to make a deal about someone's life in about 20 minutes because that's how much time most of the time that you, you ended up talking to the attorney because the attorney has to then take the deal back to the client. The client has to say yay or nay. Then the attorney comes back and tries to, you know, cut a deal in terms of the language of the petition and, like, how can we get this changed and yada, yada. That is when I realized this is not what I thought. You you mentioned something that in 2012 something shifted where you thought you were no longer just part of the solution. You're also part of the problem. Is that right? Yes. What was the was there a turning point that um, that made you think that? I'm not sure that there was one specific turning point. I think it was it's kind of like when you live in a I call it drinking the magical thinking potion when you. you when you're drinking this potion, you keep convincing yourself that you're doing good and you're doing right. And so there wasn't any one specific client. It was probably a series of clients. And I think that in 2012, one of the things that happened to me, I'm not sure about the exact time frame, was I got a broken baby client. And a broken baby is an infant that had like 14 fractures. It had a lot of fractures. Mm. And everyone was saying, and I didn't really, I had never gotten that kind of client. So in all those years, and that, by that time I had worked there for like almost 15 years, I never had got, had a broken baby client. And to realize that no matter what you did, no matter how much, how many questions you, you, you asked, no matter how much probing you did, there was never going to be a real answer. And there was never, there was no way to really find out what really went on. Mm -hmm. and that 
there was really no life affirming um, process for this family. Mm-hmm. When you started questioning about not just being part of the solution, but also being part of the problem, what effect did that have on you and the way you practiced? Well, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's probably actually can go, even go back to maybe 20, 2011. Mm-hmm. I started looking for an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. I started saying to myself, I need to get out of this. And I, that was when I decided to go back and get my license. I had started working on my hours, but I, then I started saying, well, you know, I really have to get this finished. Because anyone that's ever tried to work on their hours knows they can be, well, sometimes you work on it, sometimes you don't. Um, I became more focused. I started looking at how I was going to get out of this system. I think in 2012, I passed my licensing. And, I, and I, the first thing I did was I went out and bought stationery. <laughs> hmm. I ended up getting the stationery because I said, well, maybe if I have stationery and, and, and business cards, I will actually finally open up a private practice. Mm-hmm. So I started looking for an exit strategy. And I wanted to get into something that I felt was more healing Mm-hmm. and not as I wanted to get into more life-affirming work and less life-destroying work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, how, 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 how's that process going, or that, that switch change in direction? Oh, I, I, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love my clients. I love the work. Um, it is so nice to have people that are not angry with you, screaming at you, calling you, you know, the devil, the evil one, and other few words that we can't say on air. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice not dragging a person through the process, but a person that actually wants to be in the process of healing mm-hmm. and actually knows the difference. You think you appreciate the life-affirming work even more because you have spent so much time in, in uh, this other work at CPS? Yes, because yeah. I know that there are therapists that are burned out. Um, let them work in CPS for six months and they'll be happily go back to what they're doing. <laughs> Is that secure for therapists burnout? Go <laughs> yeah, work at CPS. Right. Go it's work nice. at CPS for a little bit. You'll love therapy work after that. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to read a little bit from your book, uh, Connecting the Dots. And this is a, a scene, it's kind of a composite, you said, of a lot of the situations when you'd go knock on someone's door after there'd been a, a CPS report. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay. I stand behind two police officers as they knock on the door. I see a small child peeking out of the window, telling her mother, there's a cop at the door. I have my badge in my hand that identifies that I am a child welfare worker. There is a part of me that is happy that I have protection. I have to check out the home because someone called in saying that they heard a child screaming in the, ha- in the home. The standby of the police is standard if I am not feeling safe. I can hear the noise of things being moved in the house, but no one has come to the door. The police knock again and identify that they are the police. Eventually the door opens a crack. Not enough to see what is going on in the house, but just a crack. The child has disappeared and I meet the mother for the first time. The police officer explains that I am with CPS and that I would like to talk with her. I show her my badge and I see her hesitation while she is making a decision. She is hesitant to let me in, but she also wants to know what is going on and why I am at her doorstep. She opens the door a little more and I peek inside. I can see the child that was peeking out of the window. She asked me what this is all about, and I ask her whether I can come into the house. She cautiously opens the door, looks at my badge, and agrees. The house is neat. I make a quick assessment, and the police are standing behind me. The room is small, and the presence of three strangers fills the room with a strange energy. 
It is a familiar energy that I have come to understand. It is the energy that comes with fear. No matter what is said, there are the unspoken questions the mother is asking herself. Am I going to lose my children? The answer to that question does not come fast. Ask her if I can interview her children individually, and then I would like to interview her. I see a sense of hopelessness come over her face. She is not getting clear answers to her questions, and each question that goes unanswered makes her stress level go up. I see her trying to decide what approach to use, one of resignation or one of fight. I try to assuage her fears, even though I know that she cannot hear what I am saying. My voice is calm. I make an assessment to determine whether I need to get her to calm down so the children won't be frightened any more than they already are. What, um, what is it like for you hearing me read this, this scene that you wrote? Well, you know, the first reaction I have is one of sadness. Mm-hmm. And it's sadness because no matter what you say, no matter what happens, there is going to be pain on that day. So my first reaction is sadness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's, that's quite a scene, and I feel the sadness, too, in that scene, and the fear. And you said there's like a strange energy in the room when three strangers and police officers and yourself, a child welfare worker, come into that scene. And um, what ways did you learn to, to respond, like, uh, sensitively to that, that kind of energy and that kind of scene? Well, one of the things that I would do is to imagine how I would feel mm-hmm. if this was happening to me. And I'm, I was always very aware of trying to minimize the damage that could be done to the family and minimize the harm that could especially be done to the children because whether people want to believe it or not, these children love their parents. And whatever is going on in that house, it is not something that they're not... It's something that they may be used to, and it may be something that's normalized, but their love is also part of that of that day or that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that I'm very well aware of what the police represent to uh, the minority community. And what's kind of fascinating is that as a worker, on one hand, I'm happy that the police are there, but depending upon the jurisdiction, different, juris- different police jurisdictions come differently to a person's home. Sometimes you'll end up having three or four police cars. And that's a pretty intimidating factor Mm -hmm. when you're just wanting to talk to a child. Sometimes the police would ask me, well, what do you want us to do? And sometimes the police are absolutely indifferent and they're really annoyed that you're calling for, um, for assistance. So... It's kind of like understanding the officer's role, understanding my role, and trying to limit the the negative impact that it can have on the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talked earlier in the interview about the importance of um, respecting a person's humanity. And did you find openings where you could show some respect for their humanity in, the, in these kind of scenes? Well, the first thing is that I would always make sure that my voice was calm that my interaction with the family was soft, not hard. I didn't go in there, you know, telling them of what they've done wrong, blah, blah, blah. I went in there with a softer approach because that is a kind way to treat someone. Mm -hmm. So that was one way that I recognized their humanity. 
The other is that when I would talk to the children, I would kind of reassure them that they would be okay and not and not to worry. And I meant that, even if it ultimately meant that they had to be removed. I tried to do it with the most in the most humane manner possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about like the narrative a lot of CPS workers had of like we're the good people and the parents are maybe the bad people in this very simplistic scene, you know. And you're taking a different stance of like um, you're not just always the one doing good. There's a lot of potential in your role to be doing harm or having being traumatic and. You think that's a difficult thing for a lot of helpers and workers to want to look at and to acknowledge that they may be on the side of doing harm to families? Well, I think it's difficult. You know, I always say that in the old cowboy movies, you could always tell the good guy from the bad guy from who wore the white hat mm-hmm. and who wore the black hat. And if you're if you're walking around believing, if you've there's a, a phrase I use in the book called a magical thinking potion. If you're walking around drinking this magical thinking potion, you want to believe that you're wearing the white hat. Mm-hmm. It is not a binary world. It is very easy to think in binary terms, but people are not binary. People have duality. They have complexity. They have, and they both can exist side by side. It is so, it is much easier to make a decision if you see the person as being wrong and you're being right. It means that you don't have to think about their humanity. You don't have to think about, am I doing something wrong or am I doing, am I part of the problem? It is almost how you create a battle zone. Matter of fact, it is how you create a battle zone. Mm-hmm. Soldiers are taught that there is, that the, the other is the enemy. By thinking of the other as the enemy, They don't have to worry that they are taking someone's father away, that they're taking someone's brother away, they're taking someone's husband away. They don't have to think of what they're doing as being damaging to another human. And it's the same thing in CPS. You can end up having this artificially created war zone by thinking that, by thinking in binary terms. Mm So imagine there's someone listening who is uh, about to embark on their own journey through CPS, and you know there's um, you know to pay for a graduate school or something like that, or some, they really want to make a difference. Like, do you have any tips you'd give to someone who's just starting out and wants to be uh, thoughtful and considerate of of um, the, in the position and wants to minimize harm? Well, one of the things I always thought of myself is a person that plants seeds. So I like to think of myself as planting seeds of wellness that I will never necessarily see or be the beneficiary of of their fruit, but I plant the seeds anyway. Mm-hmm. Because you never know who you help, you never know how you help, but you also never know who you hurt mm-hmm. and how you hurt them. So it's always good to be aware that they may both exist in the same moment. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give a, like a, another case story of some example of someone you worked with in your, your 17 years at CPS. Yeah. Well, there's one that comes to mind, and this is about a grandmother who was taking care of, I would probably, I, from memory, I think it was like six or seven of her grandchildren, and they all lived with her. 
And the grandmother's home was dirty, and it was dirty. It wasn't health and safety dirty, but it was definitely a dirty home. But the children have been placed there by CPS in this dirty home originally. Then the, the, uh, then there was a new caseworker, and the new caseworker decided that that the children should be in a more enriched environment. And as I talked earlier, that means more of a middle-class environment. And the uh, new caseworker was thinking that these children, all they were doing is sitting in the house, sitting around watching television in this dirty home, and that just wasn't an acceptable place for them to grow up. What I looked at was that the children deeply loved the grandmother. And, you know, for me, love trumps dirt. So trumps dirt. I guess I shouldn't be using the word Trump anymore, but anyway, it does trump dirt. So I decided to see if I could help this grandmother, if nothing else, get the house cleaned up enough so that CPS would leave her alone. And I did. I, I got her a vacuum cleaner. I kind of went in there and told her, you know, you got to keep this house clean, yada, yada, yada. And she would go, yes, yes, yes. Like many clients that have uh, social service or child welfare workers coming to their home, they learn what not to say, and they learn just to sound agreeable, but they're not really going to do anything. So I got her a vacuum cleaner, and the grandmother kind of lived on the couch because the children, it was a very small place, and all of the bedrooms were taken by the children. So her bedroom essentially was the, was the couch the, in the living room. And I would usually find her there on the couch. Um, dishes would be in the sink, and I, I would say, you know, you have to clean this up. So I got her a vacuum cleaner, and then one of the children decided to use the vacuum cleaner, and they broke it because they were vacuuming chicken bones that um, were on the floor. So that lets you know the house was really dirty. But the house was also filled with an awful lot of love. And there was an older boy there, and he would come home directly from school. He was a teenager, 13 or 14. And in the neighborhood that they lived in, this was the time for the drug dealers to try to make him a runner. He wasn't. He had some developmental issues, so he would be a good one to use as a runner. My goal was to see if I could get him to play sports because he really wanted to play sports. So what I was trying to get the, the other caseworker to do was to get him a sports scholarship. Well, she decided that he had to earn it. So somehow or another, he had to, that he wasn't doing enough to earn this scholarship. I was looking at the scholarship as a way of keeping him off the street, keeping him out of the hands of the drug dealers, and not introducing him to a life of crime. She was looking at it as a cost-benefit, you know, like you need to be responsible by changing your behavior, things like that. Um, ultimately, she won. And um, he didn't get the scholarship. And he then also got involved in the street. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, you know, this other worker's decision to have, uh, he has to prove something or um, do something good so he can get rewarded with uh, um, this football scholarship. It was football, right? Yes, it was football, yeah. And um, what do you think goes into that kind of way of thinking that, um, you know, before we provide a, you know, a way to play football, they have to do something positive first? Like, 
It's a behavioral technique that mm-hmm. says that's based on rewards that if you, the children should, it's also supposed to be a way of teaching responsibility. But I think that this was a child that had some cognitive issues. He wasn't running the street. He wasn't doing anything that really needed to behaviorally change. But the danger to him and the danger that the street offered to him was much greater than any reward that he should have to earn. Mm. But it's just a perspective. It's a way of we both saw this family. We both saw them differently. She saw them as putting it into a more behavioral, classical, behavioral modification. You do this, you get that. I saw it as more of a preventive solution to Mm -hmm. prevent him from being seduced by the street. Mm -hmm. I remember um, watching some documentary on YouTube about uh, gangs in Oakland, and they interviewed some like 12-year-old kids about what they thought would help, and they said, we need stuff to do positive things to do and um and it always sort of stood 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 out to me and um if this kid got involved with uh football or if cps is able to provide more you know positive activities do you think it would prevent uh, a lot of problems i think in this particular case it would have been able to prevent his involvement in the street but also remember that this happened in i believe in the 90s and there wasn't this sense of culture there there was just a sense of conceptual ideas that may or may not work in the real world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you found like some conceptual ideas that you felt like were more applicable to the work you were doing? I did find one. Recently, I actually uh, was reading this book called uh, Social by Matthew Lieberman, and he actually talks about the social connection that is stronger, that, that if you want people to change, you need to and I'm kind of like thinking about the book and probably misparaphrasing mis- it. But the idea was that real change happens when people have social connections. People change for other people. They don't necessarily change because of theory. And they don't change because of food, clothing, and shelter. But they will change because of an emotional connection that they may have to another human being, especially if that is a positive emotional connection. Mm-hmm. So what was the name of the book again? It's called Social by Matthew Lieberman. Uh-huh. And, and so people change through social connections? People and, uh, change that that is actually a stronger way of creating change than you know, pri- providing food, clothing, and shelter. What CPS actually does is they provide food, clothing, and shelter. That's what the legal mandate is. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily provide the kind of social change that that will affect healing and will actually create real movement in their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just called social. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Social. Why our brains are wired to connect. Yes. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And I've got another question, which is like, uh, what's one tip you'd give to mental health workers who are working with uh, Child Protective Services? Well, one thing that I would under, I would recommend is to understand your role within child welfare. Therapists are sometimes welcomed by case managers, and sometimes they wish that you didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So understand that your your role is to help the client that you have 
maybe plant some seeds of wellness. And even if you're not necessarily appreciated for that planting, just still plant the seeds Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in spite of the caseworker. And you've written some other books as well. Would Would you tell us about that, about your other writings? Well, my first book, I actually, you know, it actually, I started trying to manage my stress with CPS by writing. So I, I started this blog called A Gift from the Journey. So my first book is actually little vignettes that I might have thought about that day or thoughts, and I would take my life experiences and I would just write. And it was a way of getting rid of some of the the stress and getting thoughts out of my head into something that was a little bit concrete. So I describe it as uh, my musings. So there are lots of kind of life situations that I've written about, but they're all very, very small vignettes, and they're all very, and there's, they, they cover everything from drama, substance abuse, success, failure, predators. Um, so that's the first book that kind of got me into the process of writing. And the second one is a children's book called Adventures of Tiger and Her Friends, Embracing Differences. And Tiger is a biracial black and Indian child, um, Indian from India, not Native American Indian. And she actually uh, is my child. And, one of the, and she actually named herself Tiger because she always said that she was black and brown. And it comes from kind of her journey of people always saying, what are you? And not quite understanding how she could look the way she did, especially when she when they would see her her father and myself. And it talks about how differences can be fun, how differences can be scary, but most important, how to have a dialogue about differences with your children. This particular book actually is more interactive, and I designed it so that parents could actually get on the internet. They could actually talk about some of the ideas that are in the book, how difference affects them. Maybe your child might be experiencing bullying. It actually has different types of children. There's a foster care child in in that book that's always sad and mad, and other children won't play with them. And I did cross stereotypes. So I have a uh, child from Mexico who happens to be Jewish. And then I have a child that is lives in an Arab country that actually happens to be Christian. So that and then there's a character called Wow who th- runs around and collects all the wows of the world. And when something is really good, he picks up the wows and he puts it in his wow, wow uh, bag. And it is all of my writing is kind of journey writing. It means that there's a piece of me in each one of the books that I've written. And each one of them is a part of my journey. But all of the books I write also come from a sense of creating dialogue of creating conversation around the subject matter. So the children's book actually has like, is Africa a continent or a country? And it's because many Americans describe Africa as a country. It's not a country. It's a continent. Uh, Like, where's a tiger? Tiger are, you know, so the child could actually go on the Internet and look at, find where tigers actually live. They don't live in Africa. Um, there are three main characters. There's Tiger, there's Red Panda, and there's Brown Sugar Baby. And each one of them has a difference about them that is told in those stories. So it's a book from my heart, and it's a book about my baby girl. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. How, how can people um, find more information about the book? 
well, you could um, that but all all of my writing is available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Uh, you could, if you're interested in those other books, you could actually go to Connecting the Dot uh, Book dot info. Leave me your name and telephone number, or, or fill out that little card that they have in there, and I can get you additional information about the book. What do you think would need to happen for there to be a change in CPS moving in the direction of uh, you know, better services for youth and families and making making some of the changes you're talking about? What would need to happen? You know, I thought a lot about that in the book um, when I was writing the book. And one of the things that I began to realize is that the agency is just part of the puzzle piece. You actually have to look at all of the stakeholders that are involved in the institution of CPS. And that some type of transparent conversation has to happen. And when I'm talking about stakeholders, I'm talking about the judicial, I'm talking about the political, I'm talking about the families and the community. I'm not just talking about the agency. And I'm not just talking about administrators. A lot of times what will happen with administrators, they'll come up with a great policy idea and they'll try to get it implemented. And they really don't have buy-in from the people that need to actually do the policy. But to create change, you're going to have to figure out how to create change without creating new damage in other parts of the system. So they'll try to fix, the judicial will try to fix a judicial problem such as when they created the law that said um, no services cases and fast-forwarding children to adoption. That process also created legal orphans, that children that were fast-forwarded didn't end up getting adopted and they became legal orphans. So you can create a solution in the judicial end that creates a social problem on when it's actually implemented. But having a real transparent conversation with a lot of different stakeholders that leave their political agendas at the door and actually have honest dialogue, for me, would be the start of how you change the process. And did you see um, attempts made at that, like trying to get more stakeholders in the room to have conversations with each other and try to practice more transparency? Well, there, there is a process called team decision-making that um, did some of that, but I'm actually thinking about something that's even broader than that because even team decision-making, uh, limited, there was limited transparency because CPS, first and foremost, is a confidential organization. That's why there's always so much mystery uh, around the organization is that it's trying to make sure that it doesn't break any confidentiality rules. Mm-hmm. So you would need to have 
open conversation, open dialogue. Um, and it would be painful for a lot of people that are sitting there. And it could definitely be confrontational. But I think that having a transparent dialogue is just the first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you hope that the, the impact of the book is after writing it? You know, I'm in, I, I kind of divide life into seasons, and I kind of define myself as in my winter season that I have fewer days ahead of me than I have behind me. My hope, my wish, my prayer is that this book will get people to understand and accept their responsibility, whether they thought they were part of the solution or whether they were viewed as part of the problem, that all of our humanity does matter and all of our humanity needs to be seen even when we disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. Like I can imagine this book um, being read in CPS trainings and that kind of thing. Or, oh, I can't. <laughs> is that naive of me? It sounds, oh, yeah, I can't okay. imagine that being read. <laughs> well, I can also. All right, let me let me try. Let me try something else. I'll uh, I'll lower my imagination a little bit. What about um, uh, a coalition of CPS workers who want to be change agents in the system and? use this book as a conversation for themselves to figure out how they can change a system from within or how they can be starting to organize more about some changes. Do you think that is possible? Well, you know, I considered myself a change agent. I was working on my doctorate for organizational, which, by the way, I didn't get the doctorate, but I was working on that. And in, in that work, I discovered what happens to change agents. And there is a price that every change agent makes and because most organizations don't embrace change. And a closed organization embraces change even less. So it's almost like how can you be in the closet and be a change agent? Because if you become a public change agent, you will be targeted. You'll be targeted by the you, – you can be either politically targeted or socially targeted, but you will not be viewed as a team player. You know, the – the story of the emperor that wears has no clothes and the little boy says, well, he doesn't have any clothes on. It's what happens when you become a change agent. You become the lone voice that says there's something wrong and that at some point people stop tuning you out. And they said, oh, she, they're just going to tell you what's wrong and we don't want to listen to them because we know the answer. There are a lot of egos involved. And when you're dealing with egos that believe that they actually know the answer and that they are in position of power and you should do what they tell you to do, it is very, very difficult to affect change without a price. So Mm -hmm. be aware of the price that you're going to pay. Mm -hmm. And know when to publicly be a change agent and when to privately be a change agent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's often a phrase about, you know, speaking truth to power but I wonder, your your statement about uh, change agents will pay a price if they speak truth to power, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And they definitely pay a price within a closed organization. Mm-hmm. And most, this institution of CPS involves several closed organizations. The judicial system doesn't even want to think that they should be trained. The the pol- politicians, they, they're always looking in terms of maybe where the next vote is and whether or not this is a politically uh, good thing to do. So you end up having all of these different 
groups, all these different stakeholders, that they each believe that they have the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's making me think of a book that's pretty influential for me called The 5%, Finding Solutions to Seemingly Impossible Conflicts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they talk about was that um, that oftentimes these conflicts can get so tangled. And if you try to map them out, you just get all these scribbles on paper because there's all these interconnected uh, nests of um, feedback loops and everything. So it's, it's, it's not, there's never a simple map. But they, also find, they have found that people who have a sense of the complexity involved are less likely to be like violent towards other people. And I think about that with someone who thinks that they know and that they're certain, they have a very simple map of what's going on. But I wonder if a starting point is some people understanding the complexity of what's of what the system is and having a little more humility about it, maybe? I think the first step is understanding what you bring to the table. Hmm. It is connecting your own personal dots as to why you want to do this work. Mm-hmm. What this work means to you, what is your baggage that you're bringing to the table? Hmm. It's hard to think that you're the good guy if you have baggage. Mm-hmm. So I think the first step is to look at yourself then the second step is to realize what, how you can impact, where you can impact, and what is the reason that you want to impact. Mm-hmm. Are you impacting for secondary gain so that everybody says that you're the good guy? Are you impacting from the heart? Are you impacting from the mind? Are you impacting from the spirit? Because I actually believe that all of those are part of the holistic process that you have to engage in in order to be able to motivate yourself and maintain yourself within the chaos of, of change. Mm-hmm. Don't and ask me to repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> we have it recorded. So. Well, that makes me think of your book's title, Connecting the Dots. And um, what, what did you mean by that metaphor, Connecting the Dots? Well, part of the beginning of the book is my backstory. It is how I connected my own personal dots that I was in some ways unaware of and how I did the work. And it's kind of interesting that a lot of times we think that we're not necessarily influenced because we have so much knowledge and so much information. But there's always that part of us that kind of goes to our kind of our own homeostasis, our own kind of either reflex or responsive to the memories that we have of our own pain or the pain that was inflicted upon us. So I connected the dots from my early pain to how I did the work in mm-hmm. CPS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Catherine Moore, for joining me today. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and if there's anyone out there that's interested in, interested in this particular topic that actually wants to ask me some questions or has a project that they think I might be able to help them with, you can give me a call um, at 510 510-
Big thanks again to Catherine Moore, author of the book Connecting the Dots, Positive Intentions, Negative Impacts, My Journey Through CPS. You can find more information about her work at connectingthedotsbook.info. My name is Will Sherwin. You can contact me at my email address, www.sherwin at gmail.com or visit the SF Banter website, sfbantr.org for other episodes of Banter Radio. The music for this podcast was provided by Barry Garneau, who passed away a couple years ago. He's a good friend of mine, lived in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco and also Woodstock, New York. So thanks, Barry. I've got another episode planned that I have a draft of right now. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening.